Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, what we're going to do, John and Lisa, is do what we've been doing on surveillance since February, and certainly from March, and that is talk to medical professionals experts on the pandemic, on virology, about what is actually going on now. We can do that with a gentle lady out of Atrium Health of the Carolinas. And this is, of course, Atrium Health and the acclaimed Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute, among others. Katie Passaretti is with Infection Prevention there and, of course, out of the John Hopkins Combine. Katie, you received the vaccination in the treatment that you received, was there any treatment or delay or preparation for possible shock? Um, certainly, there were medical professionals on site that were prepared to respond if there were any issues with the vaccine. Luckily, that did not happen. Everything went perfectly smoothly. But yes, the you know everyone should be monitored immediately after the vaccine, make sure there's no reaction, make sure there's someone there that can help them if they need it. With anaphylaxis, we move from a rash onto other things. Explain within your general education at Johns Hopkins of anaphylaxis, and is that equivalent to this vaccination process? So anaphylaxis is a severe allergic reaction that sometimes can cause swelling in the airway, difficulty breathing, in addition to kind of the rash and hives that you mentioned. It is a very rare side effect of certain medications and including vaccines. Um, so, you know, not a common thing and not definitely not associated with everyone that gets a vaccine. Doctor, can you just build on the transportation and logistics and the effort that you guys have put in, not just in the last 24 hours, but I imagine the last several months and how smoothly things are running so far? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this journey has not been without challenges. Uh, at Atrium Health, we've been working on this for several months with a multidisciplinary team working to make sure we could get this vaccine into people's arms as soon as it was available, evaluating the evidence. You know, this vaccine is very, um, needs very special handling to make sure that it's active. So it requires ultra cold freezers that we purchased to be able to store 300,000 doses for our teammates and our patients. Um, and, you know, working through the logistics that are involved in keeping it cold until the point of delivery have certainly been challenging, but I feel like it's gone relatively well. And, you know, our first doses of vaccine yesterday went off without a hitch. Dr. Passaretti, do you get the sense that the logistics, making sure that you have all the equipment, making sure that everything goes smoothly, is entirely on Atrium's shoulders in terms of bearing the costs and dealing with things? Or do you feel like you're getting the help you need from uh, state and federal governmental officials? Yeah, you know, the, it is certainly a team effort, I would say. There is certainly significant cost to hospitals to, you know, put this into place. Buying an ultra-cold freezer is not a cheap endeavor. And, you know, the amount of resources, people, time that you have to put in to make this work is very significant. You know, so definitely everyone's working together. But there is, you know, a non-small burden on hospitals, I would say. So I guess that based on how things have rolled out at this point and based on the fact that a 
recent ABC Ipsos poll showed that eight in 10 Americans would be willing to take the COVID vaccine should it be available. When do you think they will be able to go out to their CVS or to their uh, hospital, their local uh, hospital center and actually get the vaccine at this point? Yeah, so it is definitely gonna take some time one as far as you know getting enough supply to do a broad chunk of the population and then those logistics that we just mentioned will be very challenging right now to have your you know next door cvs administer the vaccine so for right now much of the vaccine administration is in larger centers acute care centers as we get more vaccine options that will certainly open up doors and you know potential different handling that will allow um, it to get there so you know we're thinking february ish for kind of yeah. patient population. Dr. Passerotti, you can't see this, and either can the glorious people listening on Bloomberg Radio, but we've been running on TV like 4,000 people getting the shot yesterday. Did your arm hurt during the shot or afterwards? I mean, that's all John Lisa and I want to know. <laughs> Correction. Yeah. Tom wants to know. Tom wants to know. Okay. Um, so, you know, getting a shot... I've gotten lots of shots in my life, so that was not an issue. It was minimally sore. I did have pain and tenderness in my arm overnight and, you know, in that muscle, um, but nothing out of the ordinary, nothing a dose of Tylenol didn't there take care go. of. Oh, man. Doctor, before we let you go, I want to finish on a more serious question, <laughs> if we can. Please. The group of individuals that received this vaccination first, some of which will be the most risk at the most risk in society and they're already in care homes which means life expectancy is already incredibly low and i'm just trying to understand doctor what happens in the next several months when people who have had this vaccine start to sadly pass away for no reason connected to this vaccination but the stories start to build what's the best way of managing the message around that the inevitable likelihood that that's going to happen anyway yeah, you know, certainly skilled nursing facility patients are, you know, have multiple medical issues unrelated to the vaccine. I think it's going to be really important to educate up front and to keep track of the data on what is what happened to those people, you know, what else is going on and make sure that's clearly portrayed and, you know, by you all and the media, because it does have the potential to put a spin that's not necessarily reflective of truth. Well, hopefully you can come back on the program. We can talk about it as the vaccination rollout continues to build up. Doctor, great to catch up. Thank you. Dr. Katie Passaretti so there. Atrium, Health Director of Infection Prevention. What we've again tried to do is talk to pros, and Robert Califf is that. To say he's with the FDA formally, to say he's at Duke University and the work he's done with Google Health is one thing. What you need to know is he is expert in cardiology and particularly expert at the nitty-gritty of clinical trials, and we're thrilled that he could join us uh, this morning. Robert Califf, I want you to give a score to the FDA on what we've seen in the recent weeks. It seems every article in the media is skewed by politics or emotion or an angle. You're the grizzled pro. How is your FDA done? I, I think what's remarkable about this is that the workforce of the FDA, 17,000 strong, has done an A-plus job. The politics have swirled around. There's been a lot of stuff in the press and pressure and all this, but fundamentally the FDA worked with uh, the industry to do the right development of the vaccines, the right clinical trials, and they've thoroughly <clears throat> assessed in the public view uh, the results of the clinical trials. So 
I'd give the workforce an A+. Within your work in cardiology and the worries of shock, and I'm going to say a grim thing of anaphylactic shock and such, is there cardiac risk to the taking of the vaccine? Um, You know, there's a remote possibility there might be some tiny little cardiac risk, you know, for some people, but it would be a very rare thing if it happened. Remember, we have tens of thousands of people who have been in the clinical trials, not an evidence of any toxicity really at all other than some side effects you would normally see with a vaccine. So if there is a risk, it's very, very, very small. But, you know, when you vaccinate millions of people, you will see, you know, some rare events that occur uh, with almost any vaccine. That's so far outweighed by the benefits that we're seeing. Dr. Califf, sort of the heart of the question is, will this vaccine be any more dangerous because the process was expedited? That is the fear of some people who perhaps are unwilling to take the vaccine. What do you say to them? Well, we can have 100% confidence that it's not more dangerous for the first two months because we have the data. I mean, although the review was um, expedited, the trial was done like any other or the trials really were done like any other clinical trials. Uh, They were randomized, placebo controlled. Um, The patients were very, uh, participants were very carefully followed up. Everything that happened was recorded. Um, It's there in the public view. It's been analyzed independently by the FDA, which remember is a really important role for the FDA. It's not just the company analyzing the data or even the researchers. Um, You have this third check of the FDA itself doing an independent analysis. So people should really be comfortable that, um, you know, we've got a lot of data showing that this is a safe and effective vaccine. Dr. Califf, in the meantime, we can see the number of cases rising dramatically, leading to shutdowns around the world. How quickly will this vaccine make a difference and actually change the trajectory of the pandemic? Well, you've heard a lot of talk from people, which I think is quite appropriate, that it's likely to be um, late spring, uh, really, before we have a major effect. But it's it's not right to think of this as just sort of a binary yes or no sort of a thing. We'll see a gradual reduction in the transmission of the virus as the number of people who are vaccinated increases, combined with the number of people that have already been infected. And, and we can't forget, probably most important of all, during the vaccination period, as we're rolling all these people through, which has to be done carefully, social distancing and wearing a mask will make an enormous difference in the number of people who die between now and the time when the um, pandemic mm-hmm. is well. Robert Califf, at the margin, how do we convince or force anti-vaxxers to get back into society with vaccinations? Is it the job of government? Is it the job of business? Is it the easy job of transportation that says you're not getting on the whatever if you don't have a vaccine? What do you see as the mechanism to drag anti-vaxxers into a vaccination process? Well, first of all, I think we got to separate anti-vaxxers from people who are hesitant. Those okay. are two groups. People who are deeply imbued in the ideology of anti-vax, I don't think we're gonna change their minds. And I don't even think it's necessary for the most part that we force them to get vaccinated. We really need to focus on the people who are concerned and just you know, wanna be sure 
that what they're doing is uh, in the best interests of uh, themselves, their families, and everybody else. And I think um, you know there there's a massive campaign already underway to get knowledgeable people to speak out. Um, very important in all of this uh, are the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, people who know about healthcare and are going to be are first in line to get vaccinated. As we were talking earlier, my son, who's an emergency medicine doc, is getting vaccinated on Thursday. Um, these uh, most people I've talked with, even sophisticated professors back at Duke University, what they tell me is, I'm going to ask my doctor. Uh, for other people, it may be the nurse that they see. Frequently, we've got to really provide the human face to this information and about how important it is. Measured conversations like this one are important as well. So we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Robert Califf there, former FDA commissioner. Michael Gapin joins us now at Barclays, our chief U.S. economist. Michael, you look at December and then you've got this wonderful phrase looking at the hope that's out there. What's the character of our hope right now and will our hopes be dashed? No, I don't think our hopes will be dashed, but I do think the next several months will will be difficult. Uh, the, the data is is slowing. Momentum is is ebbing. Restrictions on activity are decreasing mobility. It is showing up in some of the higher frequency data points. But obviously, I think that the hope and the optimism around the medium term is is anchored around vaccines, which are now being distributed. So we, we still have this blend of, of kind of near term pessimism with medium term optimism. I, I, given what we know, I don't think those hopes are going to be going to be dashed on on the rocks of the shore. I do think we'll get there, but it's going to be bumpy to get there. Yeah. And certainly when you talk about bumpy, another sign of it is that there seems to be a little bit more weakness in the manufacturing sector. According to data that just came out, the Empire Manufacturing Survey came in at 4.9 versus 6.3. It came in lower. And this is the first read to really get a sense of the December data. Michael, how much are you uh, counting on manufacturing to remain robust as services are unable to employ people and really take off? as people try to social distance. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for that. Uh, yes, we are actually depending on it. We, it's, it's our view that um, manufacturing and factory output still has room to run to catch up with where, where demand is. Uh, industrial production is roughly 5% below where we were in February, despite the strong demand um, from households for, for goods. So we are expecting the manufacturing data to hold up, even as some of that personal spending data Fades. We, we think factory output uh, still has room to pick up as well, and not just to meet demand, but replenish inventories, which have been down for four quarters. So we are counting on it to some degree to kind of hold things in place until services sector activity is freed up, which is likely going to come more at the end of the first quarter. Still work to do for fiscal authorities. And Michael, some people think maybe for the Federal Reserve as well. What do you expect on the forward guidance front in 24 hours time? I think just something that qualitatively ties how long the Fed will be buying assets to achieving the dual mandate. I mean, as you know, they've anchored rate hikes around thresholds, achieving maximum employment, getting inflation to two, expecting an overshoot of inflation. So I think really all they want to say is, is we're going to keep buying until we're confident that we're on the path to that outcome. So right now they're just saying we're buying assets over the coming months. That's not long enough of a time horizon. So I think just something qualitative in nature about confidence that the economy is on a recovery path and we expect to to be meeting our our dual mandate. To me, this is not a big change. I mean, I I think this is more about 
aligning the language in the statement with where markets are already priced and with what Fed members are, are already saying. So I don't envision that this is any, any big, big change forthcoming from the Fed in terms of guidance. So just to tie this all together, Michael, it seems like the consensus, as John and Tom have been talking about, is looking past the now and the pain and looking toward a post-pandemic world. What would you have to see in the higher frequency data to change that view and account for a greater degree of scarring? I just think that it, for the Fed at the end of the day, I think that it'd have to show up in the labor market. And so if, if as Tom mentioned, there's that late, that late report in January that's going to come out around January 8th, if that shows a market deterioration, so we're, we're losing jobs rather than adding them at a slower pace, then that I, I do think changes the calculus for, for the Fed. So if, it, if we're losing jobs and, and, it, and then they may feel more inclined to, to do something as we move in, into March, whether that's changed the composition or increased the pace of purchases, my guess is that would also light a fire under fiscal policy if we don't have a package in place by, by that point. So I think in the end, it would come back to the labor market. Michael, always appreciate your time, sir. And it's great to catch up as always. Michael Gapin Thank there, you. Barclays Chief US Economist. This is a joy and a particular joy uh, this December to run into Peter Orzag. He's a banker now hidden in the bowels of Lazard as their chief executive officer of financial advisory. But far more than that, he is one of our truly great academics of thinking about our fiscal policy, a former service with OMB, thinking about our ruptured retirement plan, and also the mathematics in Glide Pass of where we're heading. This is what you do when your father taught math at Yale University. Peter, wonderful to have you uh, with us. I want to get right to the glide pass. It's a phrase I, I associate only with you. Do you see a 2021 of stability and relatively gentle glide pass, or are we out at uh, the tails distribution? The, the problem is we've got uh, two different stories. We've got uh, between now and let's call it April or May, and then we've got thereafter. I think uh, between now and April or May, we unfortunately are in for a rough spot, both on the virus, uh, the pandemic, and on the economy. Policymakers aren't helping, and maybe we'll turn to, for example, the U.S. stimulus debate in a moment, but we're, they're not helping at a moment of very substantial risk because the pandemic exerts a lot of downward pressure on the economy and the economy therefore needs help. I want you, After, Peter, to yes, address sir. the stimulus now. We've gone from okay. 900 kajillion down to 700 uh, kajillion. It, it is, you know, whatever anybody's politics, we can all say it's a train wreck happening in real time. I want you to speak now to the senator from Kentucky and people that are worried they're deficit hawks. What do you say to the deficit hawks right now? Right now, the most important thing that we need to do is avoid further damage to the economy. There are 300,000 jobs lost at the state government level, more than a million jobs lost at the local level. Small businesses are hurting. That is the first priority. When interest rates are this low, we have room to provide plenty of fiscal support to help offset the permanent damage that can come from that kind of job loss. I don't think we're appreciating how much scarring of the economy can occur when there is that much uh, destruction that, uh, that happens. And so right now we have an opportunity to try to mitigate that harm. One of the reasons why 2020 
as bad as it was, turned out much better than people might have expected, is that the CARES Act was so uh, massively powerful that in the middle of a pandemic, savings rates went up, credit card debt went down, credit scores improved. These are amazing facts, and they help to mitigate some of the pain. But we are bumping up against a real constraint. Eviction uh, rules are scheduled to expire at the end of December. Parts of the additional unemployment benefits that were provided as part of the CARES Act scheduled to expire at the end of December. State and local governments facing 15% declines in revenue uh, for their next fiscal year. There will be more pain coming unless we act aggressively. But so, uh, Peter Orzak, are you worried that Republicans are rediscovering their traditional concerns over debt? And does that mean that even if we get a stimulus, it just won't be large enough? I am worried that it won't be large enough. And what we are seeing overnight and this morning, the separating uh, out of state and local fiscal relief from this other overall package, illustrates the problem. Um, you do not want state and local governments in the middle of a, of a downturn raising taxes and cutting spending, which is exactly what states are going to do as their legislatures come back into session in January, looking out at their fiscal year that begins midsummer, they're going to enact spending cuts and, and, and tax increases right when the economy doesn't need it. Um, as one example, many states are already starting to do this. Georgia has cut a billion dollars from its K through 12 education budget in the middle of a downturn when schools are already hurting and you know there are, there are a lot of special circumstances that are arising. This is not what the economy needs right now. And I appreciate the concerns about the long-term fiscal trajectory, but this is not the time to be allowing those concerns to prevent acting immediately and aggressively to provide what the economy needs. What will be the main challenge for Janet Yellen in 2021? Oh, I think there are multiple challenges, but the, the first one is to try to get um, what we were just discussing, uh, you know, support for the economy uh, enacted if it doesn't happen now. I really do hope it happens now, but it may spill over into Janet Yellen's uh, term. Secondly, I think she faces a lot of um, underlying uh, questions that need to be resolved. So, for example, how much on that relief? Are we trying to prop up firms and kind of just hold them in place, kind of freeze frame? And how much are we trying to allow the reallocation that needs to happen in the economy into a post-pandemic world? How much are we allowing that to happen? On China, how much are we viewing them as economic competitors versus uh, needing to cooperate with them on important things like climate change? Uh, in healthcare, how much are we trying to prop up uh, additional capacity at hospitals? to help prepare for the next pandemic if one um, were to occur versus wringing more efficiency out of the healthcare system. So you have all of these kind of dualities that need to be uh, resolved one way or another in 2021 to set the stage for the next several years. And that's in the midst of an economy that is still going to be recovering from the after effects of, uh, mm. of the pandemic. And on that, you know, one of the things I know that she'll be focused on is the number of people who are unemployed for a very long time. So we're, we're almost at 4 million people who, are, who have been unemployed for 27 weeks or more. And if you stop and think about how much your attachment to the labor force and your skills degrade 
after being out of work for 27 weeks or more, I think we can appreciate yeah. how painful that can be, not only for the families involved, but for the economy as a whole. Dr. Orzeg, I want to go a little mathy here and a little accounting with you as well. One of the great treaties years ago was Heilbronner and Bernstein's The Debt and the Deficit, where they tore to shreds the conflation that we have in our mind between cash accounting and accrual accounting when we look at our debt and our deficit. Instruct our audience on your basic premise, which is stop sweating about the debt and the deficit as we account for defense programs or social services and, and the latter. How, how we over panic about our federal deficit. We have the opportunity now to do what I've called the barbell strategy, which is, I think, exactly the right strategy in this kind of situation a lot of short-term fiscal stimulus to try to get the economy back on its feet, reduce the number of long-term unemployed people, shore up state and local governments. You can couple that if you're worried with some delayed fiscal uh, action, you know, that takes effect well into the future. And what really matters for the fiscal trajectory is that more long-term path along with what happens to interest rates. And I think the one thing that we really do need to take into account is when interest rates are this low, it's a much different uh, picture for the fiscal trajectory than an era when interest rates were dramatically higher. So the trade-offs are also a lot different, but even if interest rates were to go back up, we still have this opportunity to do fiscal stimulus now and couple it with long-term uh, fiscal uh, action that shores up Medicare and Social Security and the other long-term drivers of the budget. Um, Peter, we had a story yesterday actually talking about, you know, Mario Draghi leading a call with other central bankers to try and avert a global solvency crisis. Is this the next big thing that will hit? Well, so far it's been uh, remarkable both on the corporate and on the sovereign side that there's been, uh, you, you know, there was a first wave of corporate restructurings. There have been some um, sovereign restructurings. Lazard advised on Argentina and Ecuador as just two examples. But the large scale across the board, just waves of uh, bankruptcies and restructurings, both on the government and on the corporate side, um, have not happened yet. And th the reason for that is that, uh, in large part, central banks have flooded the zone, provided lots of liquidity, and kept interest rates so low that even struggling businesses can refinance at relatively attractive rates. So I think there's, you know, it's always, uh, it's always a concern with uh, significant amounts of debt regarding whether when rates do go up, mm -hmm. uh, entities will find themselves in trouble. But so far, um, we had kind of a first wave and there's been a big debate about a, whether a second wave has, will occur. Hasn't happened yet. Peter Orzak, wonderful in Bloomberg Opinion column. It's an important column out on the virus. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.